Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst, your place to hear conversational information about the science of behavior analysis. I am your host, Kelly, and before we get into today's episode, we've got some quick housekeeping. First, we are ACE approved, so if you're listening for continuing education units, jot down the two key words interspersed during the talk, and then take those over to our website where you can purchase CEUs. And speaking of our website, you can locate us at atypicalba.com. There you'll find additional resources, citations, and references for each episode, and more information about each of our guests. Next, if you'd like to stay up to date with upcoming talks and live events, you can find and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can find all the links in the show notes down below. Lastly, stay tuned after the talk for a preview clip from our next episode. I promise it's a good one. And now... Today's episode brings us back to our group of amazing neurodiverse BCBAs to continue the discussion on assent and consent. In order of voice appearance, you'll hear Sarah, Jennifer, Nyetta, Trisha, and Summer. They'll talk more in depth about specific aspects of consent, token economies, and generalized compliance issues. So grab your favorite writing instruments and get ready to take down some impactful information in episode 25, Non-Compliance Doesn't Mean Defiance, an assent-consent follow-up. So um, one of the, you know, we've had several questions and comments. So one of the first comments that popped out was um, advice for, oh, this is great. Advice for when the individual has been conditioned to even when they may otherwise not give or withdraw consent. So hell yeah, let's jump right in with that one. Um, And I guess, does someone want to kind of explain what that would mean? Like if they've been conditioned by it, because I know we talked about it originally, but I think having that kind of reminder of what that looks like when we talk about being conditioned to comply. Yeah, I can go ahead for that. Um, I think, I think ABA is kind of known for that. I mean, we, we do conditioning. That's kind of like a big part of what we do. Right. And so sometimes the best laid plans can actually lead to the child not knowing that they're allowed to give or withdraw assent. And I think we, in my case, um, I actually talk to each of the clients and say explicitly, um, I teach them what assent is. And I tell them, you know, this is, this is some of the ways that you can tell me you can come up with other ways. Um, but I tell them, you know, I will never force you to do anything that you don't want to do. I might push you a little bit. I might encourage you to do some things, but I'm not going to force you. We're going to stop if you want to stop. And so kind of putting it in that language, I feel like can help, Um, It it is still going to be hard for kids who have already been conditioned to just do whatever they're supposed to do and do whatever they're told. But I think, you know, if we really sit down and have an explicit conversation with them as much as possible, I think that'll help. Sarah, I think it might have been you last time that said, um, forgive me if I'm incorrect, but about, you know, when you when you have somebody who has that history you 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 offer the break anyway and you say hey let's take a break and then you you can kind of judge by their their response because sometimes somebody who's not going to ask and they're not going to know that that's something that they're allowed to do and then you 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 know you can tack their 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 external signs like you look like you're you you look like maybe you need to to move around you look like maybe you know you you're getting a little tired let's take a break and or you know do you want to take a break and then sometimes it's just like okay yes but they wouldn't necessarily have initiated that, right? Like I think those check-ins and um, such are really important. Um, And also some of the monitoring of what, you know, going back to what we spoke about last time, what does 
you know, what does that ascent look like? What are those little nonverbal signs, not even necessarily communicative attempts, but just like, you know, the posture and the way they're moving their bodies and the way their facial expression looks and all those little tiny signs when you know somebody you can see that even though they may not feel confident in or have, you know, a good way to ask or to communicate what they need, if you really operationalize that and define what is this, you know, what does it look like when this person needs, you know, needs a break or doesn't want to do this thing or really just wants to change and do something else altogether and then kind of preemptively respond to it. Another thing I like to do is to give a lot of options and that kind of helps to help foster them with self-advocacy language as well. Like, Hey, would you rather do this in your room or in the living room? Or do you want to go outside? Or um, these are the programs I want to run today. Which ones do you want to do first? Um, Or which way do you want us to, to go through this activity? So just giving, you know, as many options as you can, to kind of help them understand, okay, I actually have a say in this. I actually have um, the opportunity to express how and when I want, you know, something to get done. Um, and like, like you said, to look at those nonverbal cues on their body language and facial expressions and um, what are they communicating on how they feel about what you're asking them to do. I usually do a combination of all of the above um, that you guys are mentioning, some great points just paying attention to precursor behaviors to when they're, when they're just done and giving them a choice then all throughout the session. So they don't, they're not fawning all all throughout your time with them and saying yes, just because they've been conditioned to say, to say yes. Mm -hmm. Also giving them, I like to tell even my own children, like I'm, I'm not your puppet master right? And you're not my puppet. I will not make you do anything, but I will, like you said, Sarah, encourage you and push and um, things like of that sort, but I cannot make you do anything. So I really, really think that, that letting people know that they have a choice and providing them those choices frequently is going to teach them to advocate for themselves. But then the last thing is, um, modeling that, you know, modeling what that self-advocacy looks like by us doing that ourselves. Oh no, that's not anything I want to do right now. Can we do something else? Model the modeling the withdrawal of assent. Oh no, thank you. I'm I, I don't want you to climb on my back. Can you come sit over here in this chair instead? And even though it might feel like it might that's that's doing much work, but I I think that this just modeling what that it's okay to say no thank you or I'm done or I need a break um by us doing the same thing you know what it's been about 15 minutes we've been working for a while I'm getting tired let's take a break I love it I think that's beautifully in all-encompassing the need for choice and the need to have and, and be and being allowed to be wrong or not wrong, but being allowed to be like, I don't know what's happening. I don't like this, you know, stepping away 
it's distressing in children. And then working with adults, it's, you know, when I see adults go into like doctor's offices, it's, oh yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And I'm like, you have a giant sore on your arm or, you know, something like that, but it's, it's that conditioning process of, no, I've just been told I want to get through this as quickly as possible. So we can wrap up and I can go do something I want to go do instead. But when you're in a situation like a therapy center or in a school, like you don't, I mean, you have to wait the amount of time you can't just, and so there's this, I think, interesting dance that we have to play. Um, And the need to know your, your person is so crucial. Like you have to be able to read their body language and, and like you said, Jennifer, be able to label it for them. And say like, hey, this is what I'm seeing happening. And does, does this match? You know, it looks like you're distressed. Your arms are really crossed and your brow is furrowed and your mouth is turned down. Are you upset? And, you know, oh, no, I'm, I'm actually, this is my happy face kind of deal. But it's, you know, being able to have that connection because, you know, it, emotions are tough. Feelings are tough. Um, and respecting authority is always a thing in there, too. So, you know, I don't want to disappoint the teacher by, you know, telling her I don't like this. This this isn't my favorite thing ever. And that's just something that we need to, on our our end, get over ourselves. And geez, it'll all be okay. It'll work out. It just takes a little bit longer. And really, I think if we are proactive and empathetic and and more uh, responsive instead of reactive, then we're building much stronger humans overall in all the ways. So cool. All right. So I think kind of with that, um, one of the next ones is literature on generalized compliance from RFT people is really eye-opening. Ooh, and thinking about masking or condition compliance and healthy development of agency. Yeah, I think this is a nice little, we, we have a good basis now. So can we support healthy protest res- repertoires? And can we remember conditioned compliance versus challenges with discriminating interoceptive experiences? Okay, I'm going to read that again. Can we remember conditioned compliance worsens challenges with discriminating interoceptive experiences? All right. And can we support healthy protest repertoires? I loved this, by the way. I loved this question um, because this is something that I'm actually learning at almost 40. Um, I love the questioning of interoceptive experiences because they aren't always understood by the autistic experience. Um, I'm not saying like everyone's the same. Uh, this is just a personal perspective and something that I've experienced as well with, um, people that I help uh, tying the interoceptive experience to condition compliance does and can worsen the challenges of trying to figure out those cues like okay I got to get through this but this person doesn't know and I don't know that I'm hungry I feel this feeling in my body um and now I'm hangry and now she's continuing to make me do these things and I can't tell her that I need a break or I want a snack because I don't understand what this feeling is I just know I feel fidgety I feel anxious maybe scared. So like powering through a program, um, without, I really love the fact that they're actually bringing up, do we even tie this into our programming? Cause it's more than just feelings, right? It's more than just like happy, sad, angry, mad, show me your happy face. Like 
some kids don't know what that, what a happy face is. Um, and my mad face and happy face are, are flip-flop <laughs> myself. So I, I laugh when people are mad at me and I can't stop it. I don't know how to stop it. It makes other people more mad, but it's just, um, so I really love this line of questioning. Uh, and, and it does, I think it does worsen the challenges of, of figuring out your body cues and being able to advocate for yourself if you're just conditioned to comply all the time. I don't know if that made sense. That does make sense. Cause when you're conditioning someone to, you know, comply, you're telling them to ignore, you know, their feelings to ignore how they're feeling in the moment. Um, so that when they're conditioned to just comply with whatever demand is in front of them, they're not taking the time to even listen to what their body is communicating to them. Um, especially if they already have a deficit in um, those interoceptive experiences, you know, in the first place, it, it makes it worse. Yeah. Like in the growing up, my mom would be like, fix your face. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I have the, the most fixed face. Yes. It's just fixed um, in the, on the same facial expression all the time, almost. And I have, a, even if I'm really happy, I'm getting people saying, are you having a good time? Are you okay? Are you sad right now? But I was, I already had an issue figuring out how I was feeling. But now someone's told me to, how to fix it, like fix it and make it look more neutral. So so now it's stuck in a, in a neutral affect um, because of that conditioned compliance to do not show that you have a, a response to what I'm saying to you. Do not show me that you're angry about what I'm, what I'm showing you, what I'm saying to you. Do not show me that you're disappointed even, um, which is a really valid emotion um fix your face no pouting put that lip back in do those things like that so i i do think that it's it, i agree that condition compliance definitely worsens the challenge of discriminating interoception so um i know that i struggle with that because i was i was given those demands to just just comply just Fix your face, just mask, essentially. I think we can th thread it very much through our programming and, and model it too, like even mm -hmm. down to basic, you know, like before you can even get to emotions, it's basic, like, am I hungry? Am I tired? Am I thirsty? What does that feel like in my body? And modeling that and, you know, going, talking about that and practicing that and, starting to teach kids to check in with themselves and what does my body need right now? Because sometimes there really is that feeling and I'm speaking for myself here, but sometimes there's just that feeling of something's wrong. Something's just wrong. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't feel good. And I don't like it. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm a grown adult and I get that feeling. Right. And for kids to be able to check in and kind of start to learn to read their body, we have to be able to validate it and we have to respond to it. And if we're just dismissing it and mm -hmm. having them, you know, basically mask it, then it, it works, works um, at cross purposes for sure. 
I think that was a really good, it's sort of a comment slash question. The first time I read it, I just said, yes. The answer is yes to all of those things. I think it's a really good one. Yeah, it hits on a lot of, um, and I, I'm looking at you, Sarah, that you can't tell because I was like, because this makes me think a lot of like, you know, if I can't tack that I feel weird and I just learn to go along with the flow, how many dangerous situations does this put a person into? Like you're, there's a gut instinct. Um, there's some fun research out there that you can look at on it. But yeah, like to go, hmm, something feels odd. And let me just pause for a second. If we don't instill that in people, like, holy shnikes, this is why we have so many issues. So, and it's, and it's terribly scary. Um, so yeah, that was just kind of my little two bits on that. Yeah, I was just going to go back to the question, can we support healthy protest repertoires? And, um, you know, yes, we can and we should. Um, and, you know, what those are going to look like for everybody is going to be different. And so you have to work it out with the client and, you know, figure out what are they trying to do? What are they saying? And then go with it. Um, I think honoring requests, like that's my biggest thing, honor what they're asking, no matter if they're asking it in a way that you think that they should or not you should honor what they're um, trying to get across or at least try to help them figure out a better way to do it. And then, um, you know, go from there if it's something dangerous or, or something like that. But most of the time, you know, if a kid throws themselves across the room and says, I'm tired, you know, don't sit up and be like, okay, you need to tell me that when you're sitting, you know, they've told you, Hey, I'm tired. And I also showed it with my body how pertinent it is right now that you know I am this degree of tired um, and you know sometimes I might say like hey next time you don't have to throw yourself out because I'm afraid you're gonna hit your head but definitely tell me like dude I'm tired let me stop you know and, and those kind of things so yes we should support healthy protest repertoires always so with that I kind of want to jump then to this uh, question a couple down with navigating situations where it's not optional, because I think this is a nice lead in because we have, there are times when like, I need you to come with me right now because there's a tornado or an earthquake or a hurricane or something and we need to evacuate or we, um, it's an emergency and you need to get, you know, things like that. But let's, let's kind of unpack that a little bit. You know, what, in those dire situations, are we reacting or are we responding to things? And I think as good behavior analysts, a lot of us try to roll through possibilities throughout our day and throughout kind of like we have game plans and like option A, B, Q, and Z. And we have our contingencies laid out, but there are those times where it's like, oh snap, something is happening. And what, what do we need to consider in those situations? What are some things that we need to do to kind of make it it's not going to be a good experience. It's going to be painful probably for everybody involved. Um, but how do we make it less damaging um, and still be able to grow from it? I guess it's a good question. I really think um, making sure that the person is heard. As an example, let's say you have a kid and they have to get COVID tested or flu tested or, or strep swabbed or whatever. And they just can't stand that that in their nose or throat let them know what is going to be happening to them if they deliver a protest honor that in that moment as much as you can by saying wow you really don't want to do this 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 is scary for you validate the feelings they feel about this this is what we're going to have to do 
And I'm here to support you for, for all the feelings that you feel when it's done. And I'm really sorry that we have to do this, even though you've told me you don't want to do it. So it's like listening to them and supporting and validating the feelings and emotions that come along with a boundary that you set being crossed, right? So this is, um, you still stuck the swab in my nose or you still took my blood work or whatever at the doctor or you still did whatever thing. But of course, we, we as good behavior analysts and parents, I'm sure we all would have gone through all the antecedent strategies to get them to where they're not protesting for this thing. But if it's just that I, I need you to get in the car right now, I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to, I'm going to place your seatbelt on you. And I know it's not going to feel fun. And I'm here to support you through that. Um, I'm sorry that I'm having to pick you up anyway. This is what we need to get done. And those are just some moments of like safety situations. You know, people do bring that up often. Like, what if my kid's running out in the parking lot? That's one of the number one. Well, he just needs to listen. I need him to listen so that he doesn't run out in the street. And so there are going to be moments where you're going to have to say, in order to keep you safe, child, I'm going to hold your hand or I need you to be tethered to me, or I need you to hold my elbow or whatever. And I know it's not comfortable for now, but I'm here to support you through the feelings that you have, that you're feeling about, about having to go through this. And those are some really good points. We, I think it's really important to um, also role play as much as you can for, for certain situations. Um, if it's that they have a tendency to elope, then, then let's talk about some safety measures of when I might have to pull you if you're trying if you're running into traffic or running in a parking lot I'm going to have to pull you in the, and this is the reason why um or you know we're going to the doctor's office and let's practice getting our shots let's you know let's practice using our um coping skills our deep breathing exercises our closing our eyes and let's let's practice things that we can do counting whatever we need to do in order to um, you know, get through it emotionally as well. Uh, so just going through different role plays um, also can be effective when um, when we're practicing these different things that we, on situations where we just have to, um, they have to do things that they just don't want to do sometimes. And, and if it's for their medical good or their physical well-being, then that's something that they just have to, we have to make sure that we prepare them ahead of time as much as we can. Um, especially if like there's a fire in the building, or if you know, if you live in a place where there are tornadoes, let's have a safety plan. Let's role play these safety plans so that in the moment is not um, as traumatizing as it can be if it's something that is um, unexpected. That's exactly right. I, I actually have a case that um, this is very pertinent to in regard to the tornadoes. And um, I wanted to make sure that this person was safe um, and knew exactly what to do because they older caretakers and this person has to be able to do a lot of this by themselves. So we role-played and role-played and look, we did video modeling. Um, and lo and behold, like three months after we started this program, a tornado came through our town and they knew exactly what to do, exactly what to do. And it was less than a mile from their home. So it was one of those moments, like 
the aha moment of there are going to be these things that are just going to come out of nowhere where like we, we do have to talk through emotions and, and support them. I think there's other things that we could be doing. So I noticed in the same question that they were speaking about um, keeping to a schedule in a structured environment, like a classroom doesn't want to go to lunch. Um, also about having to navigate getting dressed and brushing teeth and taking medicine. I know Sarah had mentioned on our last talk, um, and I, I do want to reiterate that these are all very complex skills. They might not seem complex to other people or even to other adults, but they require coordination, decision-making, executive functioning, and depending on the person, all of these things need to be micro-shaped so what, or accommodated. So what does that look like? I know Sarah mentioned um, for the toothbrushing that there's wipes. And I know for medicine, you, you can take it with a preferred thing like juice or yogurt or get the medicine flavored. Um, but executive functioning does affect whether we want to address it or not. Um, being able to transition too. What about the transition is hard? Is it they don't like the space that they're in at the lunch table? Is it it's uncomfortable to sit there? Is it the noise? Like, what is it about? We gotta, we've got to analyze what needs to be accommodated for the child to be able to be successful. And that does take micro shaping and it does take work and a task analysis is not going to hit it. You have to know your person. Yeah. And I've had a lot of experiences with, um, cause I spent a lot of time working in schools and a lot of that while well, the class is doing this now. So he has to do it or she has to do it and it's okay, but does he want to be in this environment or does she, you know, does, does this child want to be in the environment at all? Does, you know, is it a different room? Like summer, like you said, you know, maybe the, there's something about the room, maybe they're not hungry at that moment. So they don't want to eat and they don't want to feel like they have to eat and that's sort of a set routine. So, okay, nobody, you know, you can explain to a kid, somebody needs to be with you. You have to be where there's an adult to su supervise, but, you know, could they go somewhere else in the building or maybe they go at that time and they don't eat at that time, but they have to be with that teacher and then they eat later. Or um, I find it's the easiest route to just teach the kid to go along with the class. But often, you know, if you're looking at a school, there's there's options, right? There's other places maybe that kid could go in that moment. Or, you know, maybe if it's an executive functioning piece, it might be they're very motivated to do the transition, but it's something about that step. So those steps that are tripping them up, like Summer said. So I think figuring out which of those it is or a combination of that, is it, you know, is it that they really don't want to do the thing or they can't figure out how to do the thing in that moment? And if they don't want to do it, then why? Right. And what can be accommodated? I think we're, we tend not to be creative very much in the beginning and we just do the easiest thing and we need to try to come up with creative solutions for, okay, you're in a group, but you can still have your own individual accommodations where, where necessary. And sometimes I think that's something we have to like push a bit more to do and get, allow kids to tell us the why and give them room to do that. Back to those healthy protest repertoires give them more ways of saying no, more, more, like more uh, language around it in terms of being specific as to why.
Yeah. And I think along with that, um, you know, really describing things um, like uh, I think Trisha was the one talking about describing the different things that um, are going to happen, being very explicit so that the kid isn't stuck wondering and being anxious about why something is happening, um, but then telling them why also. So it, it's not only uh, um, our kids worried about what's going to happen, but they're also curious about why it's going to happen. And sometimes that can make all the difference too. So you can say, you know, instead of like, we're going to brush your teeth, you're going to open your mouth, we're going to put the toothpaste in, we're gonna, you know, tell them, go through it, but give them that why as well. Because when we eat, there's sugar that goes on your teeth. And when we um, have sugar in our teeth, the teeth start breaking down and you can't grow a, a third set of teeth. And here's some pictures from the internet of people who didn't brush their teeth every day or didn't clean their teeth. So we've got to figure out a way to clean our teeth. Here are four different options. Let's try them out. And so really explaining uh, those things. I think a lot of times, especially when kids um, don't have a lot of spoken language, we tend to think, oh, well, they probably don't understand us or they don't, they're not going to understand these explanations. And I think, um, you know, I think all of us uh, are talking about children who speak and children who don't um, when we say this. So I know we always get the question of like, well, what, if, what about the kids who can't understand this? Um, and so I just always want to, point out that when we talk about these things, we're talking about all of the different autistic or disabled children, not just the ones who can speak it back to us. Oh man, that is one of my hot button topics of like, just because they can't say a word to you does not mean that they don't understand and they can't communicate. Um, one of my, my little, my little buddies early on in my career, um, had very, very limited, could imitate sounds and like tonal qualities, but couldn't do words. Um, and her parents were very much of the belief of like, no, nonverbal doesn't mean stupid. She's smart. And she was very receptive on certain things. And it was really, it was fun. And it was so great to have that empowerment from her parents too, because they wanted her to have a voice and they wanted her to be able to say, know in whatever way that she needed to. And sometimes that came out in the form of, you know, a bite or a hit. Um, and we worked through that because, okay, yeah, you know, the the person crossed the midline, that may have been their fault and you didn't like it and it scared you. Um, but next time we don't bite our friends. So, you know, things like that. But it's so important to remember that, you know, just because someone has a diagnosis or has a disability or an impairment does not mean that their mind is fully incapable of doing anything. Like I've had individuals who um, have no imitation, vocal imitation skills, but they are receptive as all get out when it comes to picture communication, you know, have a, you can have a catalog and ask them, Hey, what do you want? And they'll flip through it. Point, point, make sentences, no words ever come out. And so it's moments like that where I go. So when you're listening how much, you know, how much are you picking up? And that's something that we truly have to consider is that just because it's a little human or a big human, um, they have their own thoughts. And if, if we're not articulating what it is that we're intending to do, that's not fair and that's not okay. And it's scary. Like if you've ever, you know, been sitting somewhere and someone comes up even just to say hi, and they touch you, I mean, that can be extremely, you know, triggering. Like I've, I'll bring my elbow up and, you know, don't touch me. 
but it's because they didn't come up and say, hey, Kelly, what's going on? Like, had you said that, I probably wouldn't have reacted that way. And so we need to have that in consideration too. I love it, Trisha. Like, I'm going to put my hands on you because I need to pick you up right now. I'm going to put my hands under your armpits. You can jump and I'll help you come up, you know, trying to incorporate it to where they still have those little options of choice. Do you want to do it this way or this way? I can scoop you up here or I can do it, you know, and that way they, we can reinforce using your voice in an appropriate way um, and build on those skills. So yeah, such, such a good conversation, such a good question too. Um, So let's jump into a little bit deeper again. So what, like in regards to consent and withdrawal, um, does it look different based on race and culture or the disorder level? Um, And then what about, what, what can we do with those kind of differences and what do we need to take into consideration? Uh, it does look different sometimes based on culture. Um, there's some, there's different culture norms that some, some cultures were taught to not question authority at all um, or to not question professionals. Um, so that, so we are agreeable in the moment and then go and do our own thing or not, or not follow through with what has been agreed. And that is a sign of withdrawal. So instead of saying, oh, the parents are not being receptive to treatment, um, maybe they really actually didn't agree with it, but couldn't say it in the moment or even in the child as well. Um, they weren't feeling comfortable saying it in the moment because of the culture. Um, so if that's if something's not being followed through with, then we need to go back and say, hey, did you not agree with this? Um, and also the way body languages are, are seen as well. So you can have... Um, we can just sit there and just stare, you know, sometimes. And if we're not receptive to something, cause we don't want to, you know, say, say no or stop in the moment. Cause we don't want to be disrespectful. We might just sit there. Um, and that's a sign of withdrawal too. If, if we're not being engaging um, in the conversation or engaging in the program or, or the task that's being asked as asked of us to do. So I think it's important to consider that there are some cultures that it isn't appropriate to disagree with someone. And so they're like that behavior is modeled in the home. So for teaching, you know, protests and I, we, we have to be sensitive to who we are with. Um, and there's, there's reasons depending on who we're serving, where protesting could be dangerous. So taking into context the the family culture um, and race of the individual is is extremely important um, when you're teaching, if you're teaching protests. But yes, withdrawal of assent can look very different. And I think like the biggest piece of advice I have, and it continues to be, is to truly learn the person in front of you. And that means um, like their cues of engagement versus not engaging. I know that we're taught to like take ABC data on our clients, but I, I really think it would be important to reverse that and, and do that with ourselves when that withdrawal happens um, and these individual context and like what what did we do that made this person shift or what happened in the environment was something added did somebody walk 
by? Did something change? All of these things, like we could be taking that data from our perspective and not necessarily in regard to what this other person did. Because all of this, life is, the experience of life is so idiosyncratic anyway. So you really fine tuning the environment and the things that happen, the SDs that happened before you saw that loss of engagement, start tracking that, <laughs> look at it. Um, and it not just be like, oh, you should just ask for a break. I think we could, we could do better at analyzing these things. All right, listeners, if you are listening for CEUs, here is the first of your two keywords. Your first word is benefit, B-E-N-E-F-I-T. Who does this skill benefit? What you're talking about goes like so far beyond, you know, we're not just going to take ABC data and determine, okay, there's an escape function. We're going to determine there's an escape function. Great. But what exactly is it that they're that that they're trying to be escape right trying to be escaping what is you know what what are those little correlations and then instead of you know yes teach i i still think that you know the teaching is great but then there's so many um there's so many antecedent pieces that could happen and just okay it's always associated with this particular activity well then maybe the activity isn't a good fit right and it's rarely quite that simple but if you find those and do those sort of antecedent approaches I mean, we are we are obligated to be least intrusive in our interventions. And so many times some of those antecedent interventions are supportive and help the learner and are least intrusive. So I think I do think we need to do much better at at taking that apart. I completely agree. Yeah, I just wanted to briefly comment on the second half of the um question so it was was saying you know does it look different based on race and culture or does the disorder level out those differences Um, and autism is not a monolith just like every other culture race group of people community we don't all think the same we don't all act the same Um, when there's intersectionality people are acting different based on their race based on their culture based on their community based on um, any other outlying um, things that they have and so everyone with autism is not going to look the same Uh, and you know somebody who is deaf and autistic will not be doing the same things as someone who is blind and autistic or someone who is black and autistic or someone who is black and disabled and autistic you know and and it goes on and on everyone has differences. And even within those groups, um, we're all very different. So I know it's easier to say, here's a list of 17 different actions that would be withdrawal. um, And then, you know, make it into a checklist and circle it for your ABC. You know, it's, it's all well and good to try that. But it's probably not going to work, you're going to have to like everybody else is saying, figure it out for the individual client and their culture and their community, um, and their, you know, close family members, and everybody that kind of is in their life, like figure out what they need, and then help teach the other people around them as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, deep topic. Um, that, you know, this is barely scratching the surface level of, but it's definitely conversations and continuing to build that rapport and not just with your, you know, if you're working with children, but building that rapport with the family so that they feel comfortable. And if you have questions, 
most of the time people like asking questions or answering questions about themselves if it's productive. So um, I worked with a family that was from the Middle East and that's a you know, a very different culture than my super white Anglo-Saxon Protestant self um, kind of deal. And and so we we worked a lot. Like I would talk to the mom. We had a lot of discussion about, you know, what our RBTs would wear to be respectful and, and what she expected of the children in the home and what she expected of them at school. And so we tried to have those conversations. And it was tough because the teachers didn't always agree with things. And so it's like, well, we need to find what's going to work best for this little guy in this situation. Um, and, and so we need to move forward from there, but it involved difficult conversations that were not comfortable, but in the long run, we're going to have such better results. We're not going to end up with these divided rifts or like Naida, you said, um, you know, I, I may, I, you know, someone would go off later or, and we would typically say like, Oh, well, they just don't want to do the program. You know, mm-hmm. they're just, they just don't like, you know, whatever. And we would have this like, aversive response to that. And we would take that to the next session and be like, well, you just don't want to do my program. When in reality, it's they don't, but there's a reason behind it. And we've not given the person a chance to explain what that reason is. And so, you know, let's, let's have a conversation. If something comes up and it makes, you know, us uncomfortable or it makes the parent or the caregiver uncomfortable, okay, let's break it down. Um, you know, we, we should be the ones modeling these things. We've got the skills to do it. So I appreciate you guys. And sharing all of your experiences and, and wonderful knowledge. Um, Cause yeah, this is a, it's a difficult task um, to understand another human and to not cross those boundaries in such a way that's going to have like irreparable damage. So um, speaking of irreparable damage, we can look at, you know, one of the other more common issues that we do see when it comes to like protesting, someone brings up in situations like using escape extinction with food refusal. Um, and this, this is a tough one. Um, it's, yeah, there's a lot of research out there on food refusal and food expansion. And um, I encourage everybody to go and check out all, all of it and do some reading and, and ask questions about it. So I'm just going to kind of open it up to you guys because, yeah, I, I've already seen faces and I'm like, yep, I'm going to stop talking now. Let you guys go. Oh, escape extinction is, oh, gets under my gets under my skin but um especially with food refusal because then now you're encouraging a very unhealthy relationship with food when you're not allowing someone to um escape um not putting food in their mouth that may be causing them pain or that is you know disgusting or they don't like the texture or whatever the case may be Uh, but there's a way to encourage expanding um food and expanding um clothing choices or whatever you're um, trying to, um, you know, extinguish um, without having to force them to do it in the moment and causing them trauma and anxiety um, in that moment by, you know, you can pair preferred foods or, you know, sit sit next to them um, and let them have that language of saying, no, I don't want to try this and present it to them again at a later date, you know, okay, okay, you don't have to eat it. Um, and then present it again and, you know, um, and allowing them to slowly open up to more options. Um, and then also take a look at why are you forcing this upon them? Is it, is this a really dire need uh, to be able to force them into this? Do they have to wear this type of shirt? Can they not wear the type of pants that makes them comfortable? Do they have to wear socks? This is, look at, look at what we're 
you know, socially trying to force kids into doing and is it even really necessary for us to have to do that? Um, there's other options that it's okay for if they want to wear sweatpants every day, or if they don't want to do an activity, um, a certain program, then let's not do that program today. Let's do something else. You don't know what their threshold is that day. And if you're forcing them to do something that is painful for them in the moment, then that's just going to cause further trauma. Those are excellent points. Go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. I'll, I'll bring up the rear. Oh, okay. I was just going to say that um, just like I think Summer and Jennifer were saying earlier about how we need to start evaluating ourselves. And you brought this up, Nayeta, that I really think that when it comes to the escape extinction, and especially when it comes to food refusal, we need to evaluate ourselves and why we have such a hard time when we see our child client person saying no to us. Uh, we need to evaluate what that triggers in us. Why do we have such a hard time accepting no? No, I don't want this food. Um, well, you're going to eat it anyway. What What in us, what about us, and is it um, that's making us refuse to accept their no? And I think that that would, that concept, like we can analyze within ourselves, like why we have such a hard time but someone else sets the boundary with us, which that is a boundary. Um, no, I don't want to try this food. Why we feel triggered in a way to say, well, I'm going to make you do that anyway. Then we can generalize that to all kinds of withdrawals of assent and consent. Um, if we start to understand that. And then also if we, <laughs> this should help us empathize with our clients when we're working on with them on accepting no, ex accepting um, when we set a boundary with them and say that we don't want them to do that because it is difficult to hear or see your, your client or child refusing to participate in the program that you so beautifully wrote out for them um, or to eat this meal that you slaved away at. Um, but really it's their body and imposing a food item on a body, I agree, is, is just really setting them up for a poor relationship with, with food um, and knowing how to read their own cues. So we're telling them not to trust themselves when they've already let us know, hey, my body's telling me something that I don't want to eat this thing, but you're telling me that that's not true, but you're not in my body. So what are we teaching them when we're, when we're working on, like if we're going to be teaching them self-advocacy and we want to work on them understanding their body's cues and how to respond to that, forcing food to a child who says no thank you or no or turns their head or any of those things is teaching them not to trust their own judgment for their body. Absolutely. Um, I could talk for days about escape extinction and food refusal. It's one of my pet peeves as well. Um, one of the things that I'm super passionate about. And uh, one of the things everybody's bringing up really great ideas. Another thing about it is that we're behavior analysts. We are not trained um, nutritionists. We're not dietitians. We're not you. doctors. Yes. We are not speech therapists. We're not occupational therapists. All of these people get so much training 
um, not, and not every, not every speech therapist, not every doctor, but the people who do get as much training about food are the ones that need to be dealing with this. Not us. We're not medical providers, um, you know, in the sense of, of food and eating and nutrition. And um, I think that's one of the things like bring it up with their doctor. Hey, are they severely overweight and nutritionally deficient to the point that they are about to get a feeding tube? If not, we probably don't need to work on this. Um, it, there's, there's other things that they're struggling with more. I think another part of that is, you know, we tend to expect more out of the clients than we expect from typical children who don't have a diagnosis. And so, you know, I do know a five-year-old who eats broccoli, but that kid only eats broccoli and chicken nuggets. And that's it. Like, and only specific Tyson chicken nuggets. And this kid is an autistic. This is a nephew of mine who eats two foods and that's it. And I think that's one of those things where, you know, we also need to get out, like step out of our little, here's the perfect human we're trying to create and think a lot of kids survive on McDonald's and chicken nuggets, you know, and, and they're, they're not going to die if they don't eat, you know, five vegetable, five different types of vegetables and that type of thing. Um, I think, like everybody else was saying, the 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 way of, of getting, you know, food, the relationship with food is so much more important than trying to get them to eat specific things. It's teaching them, you know, when you step back from it as well, it's not just about food. It's, I don't want this thing entering my body and you're going to override that. And again, that sets up abuse. That sets up a lot of different things that we shouldn't be setting up. So eating disorders, abuse, all of those things can come just from escape extinction, teaching children to ignore those things. And I will stop because I will take over the podcast otherwise. I have to thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for those points. I personally, I refer out for feeding. I always refer out for feeding because there are oral motor structures that need to be assessed. There are there's different reasons there. You could have a gag reflex. There's, there's choking. There's all these things that we are not qualified to analyze unless you've had specific training (laughs) and it, it creates trauma. Another little tiny point, just autistic culture, generally not, Mm. I'm not trying to, it's, it's just a general statement. Sameness is huge for us. So if you see, like there were, there was like three or four years where I ate the exact same thing every day for breakfast. And those I, you know, now I'm reflecting on it. Like those were some really awesome mornings. I probably need to get back, but it's, it's, it's a comfort thing as well. So if, even if you do have picky eaters, if they're eating food, <laughs> like Sarah said, and they're not like on the verge of having a feeding tube, you could do more, more harm than good. It's the, it's a, it's a source of comfort to have the same thing taste the same way than have like served eight different versions of a piece of chicken. When you know, this piece of chicken will always taste this way. And I know that might not make sense to everybody, but it it is another piece of it. I think it's a piece that isn't, I, I don't think I've ever read ever. It's just been in conversation that someone has said that kind of, you know, it's, it's the same, it is, it's comforting. Like 
I know that Doritos are always going to be delish. I know that my Cheetos are going to be delish. Like, why would I want to try this other chip? This one is perfectly fine. And it, especially with like food expansion and, and, and yeah, making sure that we're staying in our lane. I mean, that was one of the first things that I thought of was early on in my career, it was definitely something I worked on. And now I'm like, no, if, if there's a dietitian, a nutritionist, speech path, somebody else to work on that, fantastic. Um, we can, I have no problems working on like the habits that can go with it. Like, let's talk about what are healthy things to eat. Um, and then you can decide what healthy things you want to try. Um, but I don't want to come in ever and be like, this is what we're doing now. We're, you know, I mean, I have, I've, we've had, I had some families that wanted them just to participate in a family dinner and it's like, okay, cool. And we can build up to that. And so we did, we took our time with it and saw much better success and didn't have the, the negative reactions or anything with the, not not all negative reactions, but these relations, the relationship that can happen with food. I mean, food is imperative. It's in all cultures. It is a staple. It is a thing. And if it gets twisted, then yeah, you can kind of derail a person in the long run um, from an earlier age. So I love, these were beautiful comments. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, if it, if it stings, that's good. Let it sting, let it, let sit in the, in the discomfort. And cause again, I mean, things that a lot of us did early on in our careers were like, but this is what I was taught. Yeah. You know what? A lot of us were taught maybe poor things, but the thing is we have new, we have new knowledge now. And so what do we do going forward with that knowledge? Um, how do we make this better in the long run? So again, thank you guys so much. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, if someone um, is struggling, you know, with being able to articulate or their communication is limited. Um, but then there's another one about things like thoughts about using token systems, um, if then, when then statements. So where we're kind of setting up um, some demands um, and it may seem in a little bit less aversive when we couch it this way, but I just kind of, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I personally don't like token boards for the most part. <laughs> um, most of the time I do not use um, a token board. I like to create rules that both of us are going to comply with. Um, and you get your chance to, to uh, choose an activity that we're going to do. And I get a chance to choose an activity that we're, that we're going to do. And we take turns versus using a token board for a token board for um, reimburse for reinforcement um, I don't think that things that we enjoy should have to be earned all the time. Like we should be able to engage in things that we enjoy without having to earn it. I can eat a cookie if I want it because I enjoy it. I don't have to make sure I clean the whole house first before I can <laughs> allow myself to enjoy a cookie or enjoy my favorite TV show. Or um, especially when you reuse people um, as reinforcers, like a like I should be able to hang out with my family without, without having to wait till I earned all of my five tokens to play with my brother. Um, so when it, if it's either one of our choices when it comes to people, that person can come interact with us no matter what. So if your little brother wants to come and play, then they can come and play with us. Or if your mom or your dad wants to come and interact with us during session, that can happen at any time. Um, and we're not going to earn that because we can engage with our family members that people that we love when we want to, when we can. Um, 
And the same thing with in, um, engaging in activities that we love to do that should be able to be done um, whenever we feel like we want to, when we have the time to. Yeah, we want to teach task completion, um, but not to the point where we're making our, um, our clients earn every little joy that they have in their life. Um, I do use um, tokens for like um, social groups just to give them incentive for being a cool friend, um, but never for correct answers. It's always for engagement or being nice to each other. Um, just, you know, just kind of, you know, keep up with a, a nice friendly culture um, within the class. Um, but definitely if we do, if I do use a token system is because we're, um, you know, giving them tokens for engagement and not because they got correct answers. Cause then that gives them anxiety of, not getting the answer correct. Um, and I want to avoid that anxious feeling of I have to be perfect, or I have to get this correct, or I won't be able to uh, engage in the activity that I love to do so much. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I think the token board itself is not inherently evil. It's how it can be used. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those things that can be a tool to help show the passage of time, for example, I do have one client that I'm thinking about using something sort of like a puzzle or a token board specifically to show them, hey, we only have five questions left and you're done. And so it's going to be, hey, look, I'm only going to ask you here. There's three things on here. I'm going to ask you three things. As soon as there's three things are gone, we're done for the day or whatever it is. Um, because I have asked them when, like, if, if I say something vague, like, hey, let's sit down and work, they're like, no way, absolutely not. But if I say, hey, I've got three questions to ask you, is that okay? They would sit down and do it perfectly because they know when it's going to end. And mm -hmm. so that's the type of time that I might consider using something like a token board, not as a token system, so not as redeeming stuff, but as okay, I have five more questions for you. I have three more questions for you, whatever it is. And also keeping in mind ascent withdrawal at the same time. So being flexible, because I think uh, as BCBAs and, and RBTs, sometimes we forget that we're trying to teach flexibility and we're not showing that. A token board can also get us very rigid. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I say, okay, there's three tokens left or, until we can go play. And the kid's like, dude, I need a break. I'd be like, you know what? Me too. I'm going to toss this token board to the side. We're going to go take a break. We'll do it later. That's fine. I'm, I love that you told me that. Um, and so I think being, I think the way that it's used is one of those big things. And I think it's also a systemic problem of using um, reinforcement that is contrived. And so saying you need these six things, you need to get these six tokens to get this food item or this thing that we're not going to give you, we're withholding from you until you do what we want you to do. Um, and so contrived reinforcement is another one of those soapboxes I could get on all day. But I think token boards can be a symptom of that. Um, and I think that we have to be careful when using those um, because of that. I totally agree with what you're saying about not being the tool it's how it's used I it's really important it's not the only way so yes in life sometimes we have to do things before we can do what we want but it can't be that you have to do these exact tasks and earn these exact number of tokens before you can have anything that you want it's 
you know, maybe it is that, okay, today, yeah, we're going to set it aside. We're going to take a break. Um, I think it's something the child can be involved with. And I think we underestimate like kids ability to begin to learn and participate in self-management. So, you know, can, can we decide what we're going to do together? And we're going to, you know, we're going to put it on the whiteboard and we're going to decide what we're going to do together. We're going to put it on the whiteboard and that's going to help with executive functioning because yeah, if, if, I mean, I'm that kid, if you said, okay, you need to do some work now, I'd be like, no, and I'm not a kid, but it's still me, <laughs> right? Like, I'm, no, I don't want to do some work. What exactly is the work? And, you know, what is, what is the work? How much of it is there? When is it done? How do I know it's done? How do I know, you know, how do I know it's expected? Break it right down. There's, there, there are apps we can get on our phones that, you know, task analyze things and to-do lists. And there's ones that make it into a game and you tick off the, you know, and this is just for whomever. This is for adults. This has nothing to do with, you know, ABA. But it's, it's, it's a strategy, right? And sometimes that executive dysfunction piece can make it really difficult to just be like, okay, we're just going to do some stuff and then we're going to be done later. Well, what on earth does that mean, right? So I feel like a lot of kids respond really well to that sort of clear indicators, but they can be part of that. And that flexibility piece is important too. Some days it's not going to work and that it can't be the only way that that child can earn something, right? It's about, okay, you know, what do, what do we, you know, what do we think we can, you can do today? Which ones do you want to pick? Like what tasks do we want to pick? Okay. Let's, let's work that out together and then let's, you know, do those things. You can, and again, like uh, this isn't just for learners who are speaking. This is for all of our learners at all ages can participate at, you know, in, in whatever way they're comfortable with and whatever way works for them. I think that those tools can be really useful to teach sort of the reality of it and the, you know, the understanding of it without it being something that we're forcing upon them. I don't use them for the very reasons that Jennifer and Sarah were mentioning it too. It's like when, when else are they ever going to come in contact with these things? Mm-hmm. And so they're within session and then sometimes they could be conditioned as an aversive stimulus because it's impending work. I like, I, I really do like teaching self-management um, out the gate and through, it, you can start with visuals, you know, and if, if they're young or not writing or reading, like the, the visual schedule um, and it's not like it has to be static either, but it's just, it kind of, I use visual schedules. I have them on mirror to even like do my skincare routine. Cause I, I forget certain parts, you know, but I really love teaching that and teaching um, self-monitoring versus like this thing that once we're done with ABA therapy, you'll never come in contact with again. Um, so the if the if then and when then and the t- I just I I don't do it I I kind of contrive depending on who it is um, kind of how we set it up and then for those days that are off like you're you know it's I'm not doing this I'm not doing this those are the days that I build in some really cool things and we will focus on like leisure skills we expand some of their stuff that 
they, they already do. And we just do it in a new way. So it's, you know, expanding that flexibility within the withdrawal of a sin. So you can still teach things, you know, on those harder days. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's just me personally. I, I don't use them. I'm very much similar in the fact of um, it can be a good tool, but it has to be used uh, well. So, and a lot of times I see it as, I do see it becoming more of a condition diversive. Um, it's like, oh man, you're starting to, you're starting to get a little fidgety. Let me get my token board out. And now we got to do five more. And it's like, he's, he's already frustrated. Like, let's just go ahead. Like you said, so like, let's take a break. We can come back. You know, the world's not going to end if we don't do these five things right now, I promise. Um, and just really like the, the theme that I, that I, I'm really hearing is like the flexibility and being creative and really understanding the individual that you work with. And, and then that introspection on yourself too, about how does their behavior impact me and my responses? Because yeah, the first time that a kid goes, no, and like yanks away from you, it can be very jarring. You know, the first time a kid told me they hated me and I was like, what do you mean you hate me? And then I realized you don't hate me you don't like the task that's being given right now. And so, okay, cool. Yeah, man, I know this is a really frustrating thing. You don't want to do this right now. And yep, you're allowed to feel like that because it's lame, you know, because we're like cleaning the room. And so, but it's not, I had to take that moment to, to reflect and then go forward and, and have that conversation with myself of, do I really need to keep in, like imposing this, you know, very dogmatic thou shalt do the thing, or can we have some flexibility in this? You know, if, um, and please tell me if I'm crossing a line here, but I feel like and there's been comments about how society is not designed for anybody who is not neurotypical. If you have any kind of neurodivergence, then, well, you're just, you know, it's borked. Um, it's great. And so there's going to be difficulties. And I feel like, a lot of times we put programs in that almost continue to heighten the rigidity that we also don't want people with autism to have. Like, I, I want you to be flexible, but at the same time, I'm going to provide programs that really strictly reinforce your rigidity. Well, say what? Like, no, no, no wonder our learners are confused. And then they get frustrated because it's like, you want me to do what? And And yeah, this is the communication piece and why it's so vital for us to not just teach the communication, but listen to the communication that comes back to us. So, and with that, we're going to go right into the next very deep. Uh, yeah, this, this is a fun one. So things Kelly, like, can I make a comment about oh, what you just said? Oh, please do. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but it's come up a couple of times that we've oh. kind of been, you know, reflecting on our own responses as adults and our own sort of experience of when somebody withdraws assent. We need we all need to realize that as, as adults, compliance is reinforcing. Mm. The things that we are doing that induce that compliance, that evoke that compliance, those behaviors are reinforced and maintained, right? Because it is a lot easier. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a behavior analyst. I'm also a parent. It is way easier for me if my children get up in the morning and they do all the things that they're supposed to do in an orderly fashion and out the door we go. And, you know, nobody has an opinion about anything. That would be extremely easy, but it's not 
you know, it's not reality and it's not really the way I would in, in all honesty want my children to be right. I want them to have opinions. I want them to have, to ask questions. I want them to be, you know, asserting themselves and coming into their own. But when I'm tired in the morning and haven't had enough caffeine yet, yeah, it would be a lot easier if they would just do what it is that I want them to do. Right. So we, you know, we have to be aware of that and how it impacts our, thinking and how it impacts our reactions because we have to sort of counteract that. I think that natural sort of inclination that we all have to be very happy with, with that compliant little person. Right. I'm glad you said that. Cause that's really huge that, you know, that it's reinforcing for us and that we sometimes do things that make us feel good and not really in the best interest of the learner. And I'm, Really glad that you said that. Alrighty, listeners, this is the second of your two key words. Your second word is listen, L-I-S-T-E-N. It is important to listen to our learners. I think that goes right into the next, you know, kind of comments of like, we have a history of using words and phrases like off task or non-compliance and non-compliance is one of those words that that it, it makes my skin crawl. Um, I get a referral. Well, this kid's being non-compliant or this adult is being non-compliant. And it's like, well, what are they doing instead? Like if they're telling you no, then like there's other things going on. They're not just shutting down and not doing anything. And so I know that it is very much a conscious choice to to flip the script and and look at it as, okay, so why why is this non-compliance causing you distress, dear caregiver? Is it because, um, like you said, Jennifer, I haven't had enough caffeine or the morning's just not going well enough? Or is it because, you know, there's something else going on? And so, I mean, I think as we've talked a little bit, I you know, my preferred ways of trying to talk about it is more of instead of saying non-compliance, actually saying what it is the person's doing. So like um, when the pandemic first started, and some of the day habs, you know, had closed down, some were allowing masks. We had a lot of individuals that didn't want to wear masks because, well, this is totally different. I don't like the way this thing feels on my face. Um, and we would, it, it, well, they're non-compliant with this. Well, okay, no, it's, it's not that they're non-compliant. It's just maybe they don't understand why they have to wear it, or maybe the mask isn't comfortable, or maybe it's, um, we need to provide a break because for whatever reasons, it's not just this, you know, non thing. So yeah, other thoughts. Yeah, the question was talking about I want to word it as off task behaviors rather than non compliance. Um, I think we have to be really careful about just changing words too. Um, So I'd like to take that a step further and say, if you're just trying to get away from the word non compliance, but you're still targeting the same thing, then that's not really a good, you know, thought shift either. So um, thinking about like, okay, so I don't want to target the non-compliance because that's a bad word now that the neurodiversity people are speaking about it. So I'm going to change the word to off-task behaviors. Um, I think that that gets closer to what we're trying to do. But I think also sometimes we then focus on those off-task behaviors as decrease uh, uh, things to decrease when those off-task behaviors actually are the withdrawal ascent behaviors. Um, and so, oh, the, this kid is off task. He's banging his head repeatedly on a table. That would be him saying, 
hey, something's up. I can't do this right now. And so we have to really look at that non-compliance and off-task as behaviors and, and all of that as withdrawal assent and self-advocacy. Um, and I, I heard, I cannot remember who said it. It was in a Facebook group at one point, but somebody, they were talking about non-compliance and the person said, non-compliance is a social skill. And it really is because not complying blindly with people is a social skill that we all should use in our daily lives. I mean, this is a thing, you know, we're going through a lot of political stuff, a lot of government things. Noncompliance is one of the social skills we want to teach our children to do. And we want to teach them to do this in a way that helps benefit them and helps them contact reinforcement more often, more frequently. And so I think, I think the two different um, topics that I'm on is a don't just change the language and think it's all better and b look at it as as possibly self advocacy rather than just not non compliance. I agree with Sarah. I think we can. I, I look at it as self advocacy and the, the off task behaviors. We 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 do the dead man's test. So can a dead man be off task? Yeah. Can a dead man be non compliant? Yeah. So what are we really looking at here? <laughs> we always talk about this stuff and yet here we are saying the same things. And it's, it's not about language. Like Sarah said, it's about figuring out how to best support this person to be able to perform skills and tracking off task and non-compliance. Dead man does that. So it's, we should be looking at something different. Yeah, like what are they doing in their other time? So, you know, off task, well, is it they're playing on their tablet or are they, you know, twiddling their pencil? Are they, you know, you know, I don't know, tapping their fingers or something, you know, it just, again, it, it's not as easy as, as you guys said earlier, as an ABC diagram or a task analysis or an FA, it's, it's not that clean. Um, it'd be great if everything was, but it's not because we're humans and we're individuals. And so all of those things need to be taken into consideration as we're, um, you know, working. So we've got pretty much like one more. And I, I think I'm going to, I like ending on this one. Um, Cause this one we did have several comments about, and this was Nyetta, you mentioned bullying and what that can look like. Um, and there was just some questions about, could you provide some more information? Um, and then the person commented that they teach the way that peers has broken it down. And I am not familiar with that. So if you guys are, I would love that information. Uh, I am familiar with the peers curriculum. Um, I use it, some of the lessons in my social group, but some of it can be a little bit ableist and um, culturally biased, some of it. So I don't use all of it or in some of the ones that I do use, I do change it a lot. <laughs> To, to fit um, the kids that I'm teaching in the moment. Um, and I um, lean heavily on role-playing than the, um, the way the curriculum is written. Um, so I don't hate peers. It's, it's a decent um, curriculum. Um, the bullying lesson in peers, it's okay for the dominant culture, I would say, um, the dominant culture in America. Um, it's when you're talking about bullying, it's very important to, to talk to the family on how they handle the situation. And in the African-American community, we don't even use the word bullying. 
um, we call it like messing with or trying to fight me is what is a language that we'll, we'll use for bullying. And um, some, some of us will, will like use um, a family member, like a cousin or older brother or older sister to help advocate for us um, or to help, you know, to help advocate for us in that situation um, because the parents are busy at work. Um, and so the older brother, sister, or cousin, or someone might be like the, the next parent in that situation. So you just have to really communicate with the family to see how they handle that situation, how they handle it in the school culture. Um, every school has a different culture. Um, every race has a different culture. Um, every social economic uh, area has a different culture. So it's going to depend on literally that client's environment on how what's going to be effective for them um, when it comes to bullying and what bullying even looks like could be different depending on culture. Um, we do um, a, a thing called bagging on each other in the African-American community and it's all love and on the outside looking in it could look like bullying because we're like making fun of each other but you have to look and see hey are both parties laughing if so then it's not bullying. <laughs> Um, and then if, if it does get out of hand, we usually say, hey, dude, that was not cool. Like, hey, you crossed the line. And you're like, oh, my bad, my bad, and, and back off. Um, so that's not a bullying situation. So it's really important to talk to the families and figure out what situations are considered bullying. And in your environment, how are what's an effective way for it to be handled? And then come up with a task analysis, analysis to teach the child, because also it could be um, a situation where it might be gangs involved that are are um, trying to overpower you in that situation. So that's going to be handled a lot differently than the curriculum showing in, in peers. So you really have to look at the client's um, environment and how and what's, you know, what's the common bullying situation or even if bullying is even a word that's even being used in that environment because some people might see like bullying as something that only white kids experience because, or you, or you're um, in a certain, it only happens in a certain environment because language is used differently. Um, so if you maybe have to change out of like, Hey, what does it look like when someone's messing with you or when someone's trying to fight you? Um, Cause that might be something that clicks with them a little bit more um, to kind of even give, give you a guide on how they handle that situation in their environment. Hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> But it's really situational. It's not like just one black and white curriculum that I can give you to say that this is going to work in every environment, no matter what, what child you're going to encounter. It, it really just depends on where they're coming from and their family and their family dynamics and, and the environment that they grow up in. I think those are beautiful points. And it's tough to, you know, because I mean, kids can be mean. Um, but like you said, you have to make sure that you understand the, the dynamics of the relationships because some kids might be a little bit more, you know, nitpicky with each other than with somebody else. And so I can tolerate it with, you know, Joe, but I can't tolerate it from Bill because, you know, we're not as close. And so when he says something mean to me, I can't just laugh it off. And so being, you know, dynamics change and they fluctuate and we have to be respectful of that. And then we also 
still need to make sure that if our learner is saying that someone's messing with them or that they're, that they're being bullied or they feel uncomfortable or pressured in situations that we're validating those feelings and that we're honoring it because how terrifying is it to be like, Hey, this person is picking on me and it just gets dismissed. And then we see the escalations that can happen. And then, you know, it's always the second kid who throws a punch who gets caught, not, not the first one. So it's, you know, we need to be able to look at it, not just as, you know, they're not tattling on somebody they're they're advocating for themselves. I don't like this situation. I don't like what's going on and I need help. And that's where we can come in and be like, okay, so yeah, let's figure out what we're going to do with this. Um, And so, yeah, thank you so much for sharing and other thoughts, either on bullying or anything else as we've kind of gone through a lot. And time-wise, I'm like, I know, I'm like, man, we've hit a lot and I need to do some thinking and sitting and ruminating. Um, but yeah, if you guys have any last minute thoughts, words of wisdom you want to throw out there, challenges to people. I think the main overarching thing that we all kind of touched on today was um, be very learner centric um, to the specific person because Mm -hmm. race, culture, disability, all these different things, families, you know, dynamics, all of them are going to affect that child or that adult, that person that you're working with. And so specifically, you know, finding one assessment or or one book or one guide or one data sheet that's going to help, you know, all of the kids. It's not realistic anymore in our field. Um, Whereas that, you know, that may have been what we used to do is try to really categorize and try to do those things. It's not as helpful. And and we need to make sure that we, as, as our field says, we individualize everything. We really need to make sure we stick with that um, and work with the individual, not for the individual, but also make sure it is actually individualized. All right, listeners, I'm super excited for you guys to hear a preview from our next episode. So here's a clip from What Does It Mean to Be Constructional with Awab Abdel Jalil. Goldine really stresses in his chapter in social casework is the part of we want them to be their own contingency analysts by the end. Now, they don't have to have our jargon and we wouldn't want them to because it's not great. But can you can can they see their life as we see it? With, with a contingency analysis, right? So Gold Diamond talked about insight when your clients have insight is when they talk about and see their life the way you see it. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website atypicalba.com for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes.